Melody. Melody. Boom! Give me that beat now. You are listening to the Cannabis Consult Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jamie Caroon. This podcast takes an in-depth look into the rich and rapidly evolving field of medical cannabis. Each episode features an interview with a figure who is seeking to legitimize the use of this plant as medicine and make a difference in patients' lives. All feedback is welcome. Email jamie at centerformedicalcannabis.com. Thanks for your time. Jersey, big up, big up. Yeah. My guest in this episode is Greg Tilford. Among other things, Greg is an herbalist and an author of five books on herbal medicine. He is the founder and CEO of a company called Animal Essentials, which is a manufacturer of herbal supplements for animals. They make a really cool raw hemp-derived CBDA product from juicing hemp leaves. Greg is a leader in the field of natural pet health. He consults with veterinarians all over the country. He's also taught at a number of vet schools. He is a true nature lover and an animal lover and a wealth of knowledge. Okay, Greg, so let's just start with your background here in the beginning. So you've authored several books on herbal medicine. You've started and you currently run a company that manufactures, I think, dietary supplements for animals. You educate veterinarians. You've also been in law enforcement. So take me through your your professional timeline a little bit. A lot of people often ask, where did I begin as an herbalist? And my answer is it started when I was very, very small in the canyons of Southern California. And I grew up in San Diego. And I can remember as far back as the third grade, I had a fascination with plants and nature. And the whole concept of living close to nature was was very much with me all the time. And I used to take my my childhood friends in the third grade up into canyons <laughs> to show them what was edible and how to, you know, harvest foods and how to get water out of, you know, barrel cactus and stuff like that. And nobody got poisoned, amazingly. Where did that interest come from in you? I think that fascination always was with me. My mother told me that if she didn't keep an eye on me as a baby, I would be crawling off under the bushes and doing my own thing. Anywhere there was a piece of dirt and plants and nature, I was always there. And so, you know, life takes a lot of different turns and progressions. And as a young man, I wanted to help people. And I actually started in emergency medicine first. I went to work as an EMT and later a paramedic and then went into law enforcement for eight years, at which time I realized that, you know, all I really wanted to do in my time off is get back into the mountains and kind of return to the canyons of my youth. So in uh, 1988, I, I was married to a woman that was also in law enforcement. We just got totally burned out, which is understandable, out of Southern California and decided, you know, let's cash in what we have and buy a remote piece of land in Montana. It actually took a while to find it, uh, very remote. And uh, we bought this land and we moved up there with a, to fulfill the dream of Grizzly Adams and living as close to the land as we could. And that's exactly what we did. We built a little cabin on top of a ridge top and started studying plants and their relationships with the animals around them. And I started writing as she did as well. And uh, we lived off the grid for 11 years in Montana uh, until until 2000 when forest fire burned us out. Wow. Uh, burned everything. We lost everything in that fire. But it was the, you know, it was the foundation of deep intensive study, starting with plants and then realizing, you know, First of all, we had to have learned about our internal medicines from observation of plants and animals and the interaction between the two. I mean, 40% of all of our internal medicine today 
is derived from a botanical premise, meaning that we found a chemistry in nature that we could exploit for something. And and spending that much time in the mountains, I, I began to realize that the plants and the animals, it's a give and take situation. It's it's beyond symbiosis. It's it's an incredible interconnected study uh, watching how things work. So realizing that we, we started harvesting wild medicinal plants for the human side of uh, the, the natural products industry. And um, I started writing books on edible and medicinal plants. And we realized that nobody was doing it for the animals. So from that point in 1994, we started calling friends that were veterinarians and saying, hey, if there's anything we can do, what can we do as herbalists to support you and your clinic and the animals that you take care of? And, you know, a lot of people ask me, where did I get the training to use herbal medicines and animals? And the truth is, is 1994, there was no place to get training in that. And I started doing research from from human research outward. And what I found is that there's a lot of scientific validation of medicinal plants. It's just buried in in uh, human drug studies because you know, oftentimes we'll be, of course, as I mentioned, looking for those chemistries in plants, and then there will be an animal study attached to that. So there's a lot of information about the various constituents of plants in in medicine. It's just not it, it, you have to go about it a different way to find it. Yeah, I think just to interject here, a lot of people also assume, and we're going to get to talking about cannabis and CBD, et cetera, but a lot of people also assume that because of federal prohibition against marijuana, that there's not a lot of research out there on cannabis and and marijuana and THC, et cetera. But the reality is that there is, there's a a tremendous amount of data. It's just not the, the, the gold standard randomized control trial that everybody wants. And the, the same is true, you know, I come from the world of naturopathic medicine, complementary and alternative medicine, and everybody who um, criticizes that world thinks that there's no evidence, but there's a lot of evidence. It's just that there are different types of evidence and we may not have the, the highest quality evidence for certain things, but when you look at um, the observational evidence that exists for humans and animals in interacting with plants, there is a substantial amount of evidence out there. Yeah, there's huge volumes of evidence. And, you know, the unfortunate thing about it, the whole scenario is that the evidence that exists is it's tied up and it was funded for the purpose of drug research. And for me, for instance, to say that valerianic acid will actually work toward calming down a horse, I can find the studies on valerianic acid, but in order to be acceptable in the minds of the powers that be, I would have to repeat that study, title it for use in animals and go through the exact same process again to get a drug approval, you know? And so there's, there's a lot that's tied up in the politics and economics of our pharmaceutical approval process in this country. And it's really unfortunate because we're wasting a lot of time and money repeating things over and over again to get what we want. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned 40% of probably FDA approved prescription drugs originated from a compound that was synthesized in a plant. And this this dynamic also exists in the world of cannabis, which is the, the pharmacological model that exists for clinical research is based on a, a single active ingredient because we want to draw a cause and effect relationship between one thing and an outcome or a certain set of outcomes. 
but botanical medicines are not just one thing. And so there is this dynamic with trying to isolate CBD or valeranic acid, whatever it may be, and then administer that to an animal or a human and look at the effects and, and understand the dose and the method of administration. But then in real life, most people, at least if they're using these products um, and they're not FDA approved drugs, they're using an extract, the valerian root that's standardized to 0.8% or something like that. And so the question is, are these two different interventions or are they the same thing? And how do you dose? Exactly. And, you know, that's a very good question. You know, basically what we're talking about is we're, we're taking medicines that are packaged by nature in their whole true form and we're isolating off one component to make a drug or an isolate, if you will, that is something that we can actually put a patent on. And that has a lot to do with it as well. And, you know, the the big question in my mind is, you know, we, we discover things like CBD and THC, CBG, all of all of the terpene components and such of cannabis. And what we're overlooking at this point is what is the value of the whole plant? You know, we've learned a lesson many times with various other herbs. You know, a good example is St. John's wort. We discovered that it contains hypericin, which, you know, it looks like it would be a good antidepressant and have all these wonderful properties, but we've we found out the hard way through millions of dollars of research that if you isolate that component away from the rest of the plant, it doesn't really work as well. It has to have the entourage effect of what science used to consider inert components. And I think we're going to run into the same thing with cannabis. There's a lot there that we're not really considering in favor of a few different isolated compounds. I'm really excited with the, the idea of getting my hands on, you know, some good certified organic hemp and doing some extractions and finding out just what else is there. I mean, the, the nutritional values of the hemp plant are amazing. It's got omega-3s, it's got omega-6s, you know, fatty acids, it's full of vitamins and minerals, it's antioxidant. You know, there's, <clears throat> there's definitely a call for hemp and cannabis as a nutritional component, not just as a medicine. And I think to do that, we need to take a harder look at, you know, the whole plant. As herbalists would say, the, the whole plant is always greater than the sum of its parts. And natural medicine requires, you know, us to uh, adopt a mindset that realizes that there are, there are things in nature that work. I mean, they're, they're undeniable, yet they can't be validated by science because we can't find a way to, to validate it. Like the, the argument about inert versus active ingredients, the entourage effect something we have to accept. And as an herbalist, I'm willing to accept that without the same type and level of scientific validation. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. We see the results. We feel the results. There's, as you mentioned, there's lots of evidence, empirical and otherwise, and lots of history to show that it's been working for a long time. Yeah. And the, the threshold is lower to experiment with a given medical intervention if the safety profile is very high. In other words, if there aren't uh, well-designed clinical trials using valerian root extract in horses to help calm them down, mm -hmm. but there is a reasonable or, or at least good enough quality data sh to show that it's safe, well then you know, we don't need the outcome data to justify the experiment because the downside is very low. And so if we can have a sense Mm -hmm. from what has been done, what has been observed, what a what a reasonable, tolerable, safe dose can be, 
then go ahead and try it because the downside is not going to be very severe. And and a lot of times we can't say that with prescription drugs because the adverse effect profile is um, you know is is not what it is a lot of times with these natural uh, natural products. Absolutely, and it's it's in in my realm, herbs for animals. It's certainly created a a very uh, favorable discretionary relationship with the Food and Drug Administration because their their position with using herbal supplements in animals, um, it, it's really based on first do no harm. And as long as we're not doing any harm and making any egregious claims and we're transparent with labeling and and, and things like that, they're 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 in their discretion, we're of a very low enforcement priority that doesn't even really warrant considering, especially with you know, the National Animal Supplement Council's adverse event reporting system, which tracks every, you know, National Animal Supplement Council represents over 85% of the entire uh, pet supplements industry. And what they require of us is that we have to put in all of our formulations, all of our sales data into a an encrypted database that 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 basically tracks all of the ingredients in all of our supplements um, to uses in various animals in various forms, dogs, cats, horses. And this has been going on for like since 2002. So for instance, if somebody comes to me and said, hey, my cat has a, a terrible relaxion, reaction to chamomile, it's, it's got uh, internal bleeding or something like that, which isn't going to happen. We can go back into that database and we can show that, hey, well, out of 130 million doses of chamomile, in cats over this range of products, we have one or two adverse events. You know, we've got this incredibly powerful database now that shows the safety of, of, of herbal medicines and, you know, CBD and, 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 uh, industrial hemp and such, it's going to fall the same, the same way. Yeah. So you're talking, uh, you're talking about post-market surveillance because these products do not need to be approved by the FDA prior to being sold and marketed, right? And so there is a requirement that you do and you conduct post-market surveillance, just as there is with dietary supplements for humans. Is that right? Yes, but it, <clears throat> the difference is, is that we have a very robust, I mean, it's an incredible adverse event reporting system that everybody wants. I mean, I know the FDA has been trying to get it from NASC and it's it's very powerful. And in in many respects, you know, it works really, really well. It's, it serves the consumers extremely well. It serves people like you and I very well. What it doesn't serve well is what I think the pharma companies would like to see, you know, and they don't like the idea of people pulling dandelion out of cracks in the sidewalk as opposed to using Lasix or furosemide as a diuretic, you know, and what they'd like to see is some adverse events, events and some, some data that would suggest, wow, this, uh, this needs to be rethought. Maybe this is, this is a drug plant. Maybe this is not safe. Well, they're not seeing that. And I, I know they're not really too happy about that either, but I am. Yeah. Is, is that adverse events reporting system something that's available to the public? No, no, it's not. So you have to register with the CVM. Is the CVM, the, the CVM is the Center for Veterinary Medicine, which is an agency within the FDA. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So we don't register with them. We, everything is administered through the National Animal Supplements Council, which is, okay. you know, it's, it's a self-regulated trade, but that whole system, the entire system is completely transparent to the FDA and the Center for Veterinary Medicine. They're, they monitor it all the time. 
uh, we're required to put every adverse event in, whether it's just my cat um, just seemed nauseous after taking this herb, for instance. That has to be reported and it has to be followed up on in a timely manner. And uh, it goes into the system forever, all of the data that we collect on that. So it's more work for us as manufacturers, but it, it's definitely created this level of credibility that uh, didn't exist before. All right. So let's let's go back a little bit into your background. So you talked about being in Montana, living off the grid, studying, reading, writing. Did you have any experience writing professionally before you started to write those books? I wrote, um, <clears throat> you know, I've, I've, I've always been a hobbyist writer and such. And my first book, the uh, Eco Herbalist Field Book, was my first published book work back in 1993. And, um, you know, it, finding, you know, the biggest, the biggest problem with writing, I don't know if you would agree with this or not, but it's finding your style and finding your voice on, on paper. It's not so much about spelling and composition. It's about speaking in a different medium, so to speak. And it takes time, but no, I, I, I learned as I went, like I think m many writers do. You know, I did a lot of technical writing, of course, in law enforcement and such. I did a lot of police reports. I was an investigator. I did crime scene work and stuff like that. This is a little bit of a segue, but the, the writing process is fascinating to me and so challenging. Mm -hmm. And um, I feel like writing has changed the way that I communicate verbally, because when you're when you're writing exactly, it's about finding the voice, finding the story, and you have to set things up in a certain way so that the reader can follow the story. And I often feel like in personal conversations with people, people who don't write, a lot of times they don't set up their stories when they start to talk to you. But from my own experience in writing, that's something that I've learned to do just because you have to think about the story differently when you're actually putting it in words on paper. Yeah, not only that, but you, you have to do it in a limited space. You know, one of the most challenging aspects of writing for me, one of it's not writing a, a, a long book or a 10,000 word piece. It's, it's taking a 3000 word rough draft and whittling it down to 750 words for an editor and still getting the same message across. It's, it's not easy. Right. It's challenging. It's fun. It's challenging, but you're right. It, it also affects the way we communicate verbally for sure. Are you working on any projects now, writing projects? I am. I'm actually, I'm taking kind of a reverse approach. I, I feel like a lot of the information in my head after 24 years of doing this and, you know, working with over, I don't know, about 600 veterinarians globally, I feel an urgency to get information out. So I'm kind of working more on a, a lecture path and a speaking path than I am a published writing path. It's kind of a reverse thing. The book will follow. I'm working on a piece called Earth Herbs and Animal Wellness right now, which it talks about the relationships between humans and animals, the human-animal bond, but also how we have an opportunity through animals and the herbs that we discover to step closer into that circle of life that humankind is so so desperately in need of. You know, we're, we're so disconnected from the natural realities around us in many respects that we have this opportunity to to reach back through the needs of animals. We're forced to understand things about them that don't really apply to us. We have to accept the fact, for instance, that a dog is a dog and not a human family member. And, and in the process of learning about their system, we have to identify other natural systems that support them. And it, it, it really connects us all. 
and deepens that that relationship with the animals and the veterinarian for sure. Yeah. So what are you doing with vets these days? Well, we uh, we service a lot of different vets through Animal Essentials. We we provide them with products for prescription in their clinics. But I also work as a formulator and a custom custom formulator and an advisor to them. I get calls from them almost every day and and help them find different protocols for holistic path using mostly botanical medicines. And we haven't actually defined what Animal Essentials is. Why don't you give us a quick summary? Animal Essentials is a company that um, manufactures natural supplements, everything from digestive enzymes and omega-3 fatty acid supplements, calcium supplements, but also a full range of herbal extracts that I, I invented back in 1994. It started as a company called Animals Apothecary, and we renamed everything to Animal Essentials. But we do about 40 different glycerin-based herbal extracts that we compound into I'm going to say about 15 other compound formulas. And uh, that is pretty much the hallmark of what we do. And those formulas are designed for situations ranging from dental care to uh, management of, of cancer and things like that. Everything everything in between. Do you uh, currently sell products that contain um, hemp extracts or CBD specifically? I do. I have a, we have just a, a straight, simple, um, we call it super hemp oil. It's a, it's a, just a really good analytically pure uh, CBD oil in a, in a certified organic uh, virgin hemp seed oil base. And then a, a more unusual product we have, uh, we call our hemp leaf extract. And basically what we've done with that is we've taken fresh pressed hemp juice uh, that has been spray dried and then reconstituted it into a concentrate and preserved with vegetable glycerin. And so the, the end result is is a raw hemp extract. It's never had heat applied to it at all and very rich in CBDA, the acid precursor to CBD. Um, we're finding that it, it it's very good for, for nausea and appetite. It's a really good antioxidant. It's good for energetics. It, it's being used as a daily tonic in animals. It tastes good too. Unlike many hemp extracts. Yes. So how did CBD, how did hemp uh, come on your radar? I mean, how, how long have you been offering these products? I've either been offering them or advising about them um, pretty much since the, the big wheel started turning in the direction of CBD several years ago. Um, I didn't jump onto the bandwagon like so many other companies did. I didn't jump onto the gravy train as quickly. And I think that for me, I think that has been an advantage because it's, it's, it's lent some credibility to, to my, my work as an advisor in that I'm not really just pushing products. I, I personally can't stand infomercials, for instance. And uh, so when I heard about CBD and I, I learned about the endocannabinoid system and that discovery back in 1989, which fascinates me to think that we can discover an entire system of the body just relatively a few years ago, it makes you wonder what else is left to be discovered. I, you know, I was intrigued and uh, there's no question that CBD and, and the other components of the cannabis plant are, are powerful medicine for that can be applied in a lot of different ways. So most of my work with it has actually just been study and, and trying to um, help figure out ways to 
to standardized quality process, most of all. You know, one of my pet peeves, no pun intended, with um, all the CBD products that have shown up in the pet realm is they, it, it's, it happened so fast and everybody wanted to get on the gravy train so quickly. At the same time, all these analytic labs that are specific to nothing but cannabis popped up right behind them in garages and in industrial parks and everywhere else. And everything just took off without any real quality control standard. You know, what, what level of processing, what kind of solvents, um, are there any issues of, of TH, residual THC? You know, I'm sure you remember in the earlier days in the United States, there were companies trying to extract the THC off of uh, cannabis extracts to, to leave CBD behind. And, you know, sometimes that worked, sometimes it didn't. But one of my biggest issues with it now is, you know, I hate to use the word regulation. But we have to have some kind of oversight and some kind of standard as to what people should expect, not just in terms of potency and how many milligrams of CBD are in a product, but what else is there and what isn't there and how is it processed. There needs to be more transparency and there needs to be, um, you know, some kind of a standards committee or something overseeing this industry for us to really move forward. Absolutely. I mean, a lot, a lot of people will say that, that dietary supplements for humans are not regulated by the FDA. And that's not true. They are regulated, but they're regulated very loosely. And one of the things that I love to talk about is in California, for example, if you want to get CBD that's derived from marijuana, then there's a regulatory process that is very stringent. And you have to pass all of these different analytical lab tests. But if you want to get CBD from hemp, you don't. The standard is much lower, and yet more people are using it, uh, I would uh, would speculate, from a hemp source than from a marijuana source. And, and, and it sounds like the same is true in the world of animals. Absolutely. I mean, pretty much everything in the animal supplements realm is a mirror of the human side. I mean, people are discovering plants and plant medicines for themselves, and they're realizing, wow, maybe my dog could utilize this too. And vice versa, you know, so it, it mirrors each other pretty, pretty closely. You, you know, the, the hemp plant versus marijuana, you know, I'm, I'm happy to hear you say that. You know, I've been following and, and studying the, the, the protocols in the European realm for quite a while where they've got a pedigreed hemp program. I think there's about 44 cultivars last I counted of, of, of hemp species variants that will not produce THC. Some, some are bred to produce cordage, some are bred to produce CBD, but it's an actual pedigreed system that's been in place for a long time, very stringent in the way they follow it to make sure that there isn't more than 0.2% THC in the case of Europe. And um, I look forward to seeing that happen here. I think it's it's valuable going in. I mean, if you know what's going in the ground in terms of the seed that you're putting in, and you can monitor and control that plant from the ground up all the way through the post-manufacture and the compounding, then you're, you're way ahead of the game. I hope, I, I hope that, that comes to fruition here. I really do. I think it would simplify, it would simplify a lot of things if we just watched and, and did what, what Europe has already done for us. So you mentioned um, CBD kind of coming on the scene in the world of um, veterinary medicine and, and just the world of pets in general. When you look back at, at your history in the world of natural products, 
what do you what do you think of CBD um, relative to other waves of of ingredients, let's say, that have come through that, to offer so much promise for pets? I think it's the greatest the greatest discovery I've seen in my in my life as an herbalist or really in in medicine. I mean, again, just the fact that we we discovered an entire endocannabinoid system that has really been neglected, especially for the last eighty years or so. Um, it's, it's remarkable. And, and I think it can only, it's only going to get better as we discover more and more. I think there's a couple of, there's a couple of sticking points and one of the dangerous spots. And the reason I say dangerous, it's not necessarily because of a, a health threat, but in an industrial threat is, you know, there's no doubt that CBD can cure, prevent, and mitigate disease. So therefore, it falls very squarely into in the middle of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act as a drug. And now, you know, we've got one drug patent out there that amazingly hasn't affected commerce of CBD supplements yet, but the threat is there. I mean, we're, we're dealing with a, a compound that has been isolated, has been studied. It is a drug, and I, I, I hate to think that it could go the same route as um, the lovastatin issue of years ago when red rice yeast and the same constituents were showing up on supplements label and people were getting sued because of it, because of existing drug patents. That's one challenge. Um, the others, of course, again, is is quality control, quality standards. We've, we've got to get to work on that. There's no doubt. The promise and future of CBD and, and cannabis and I really think CBD, we're just, it's important, but it's only one component. I think we're going to have many more really wonderful surprises coming out of, out of this plant. Yeah. And, and the issue that you were alluding to before was this idea that Greenwich Biosciences, which is the U.S. subsidiary of GW Pharmaceuticals, a U.K.-based pharmaceutical company, has patented a CBD drug that's been approved by the FDA. And it's essentially isolated CBD from the marijuana plant. And CBD is also being sold as an ingredient in dietary supplements and as an additive or ingredients in foods. And you were referring to red yeast rice and the lovastatin issue. And this is, you know, there's a lot of interest here um, and a lot of concern. And the issue really is, can you be selling an ingredient as a dietary supplement when it's already been approved as a drug? And the FDA says no. Um, but there have been some indications from the FDA, at least the outgoing commissioner, Scott Gottlieb, that um, they are seeking ways and they're uh, eliciting input from the industry to try and find a pathway for CBD to remain on the store shelves. Yeah, I think, you know, the genie is so far out of the bottle, they have to go about this in a different way. There's no doubt. Yeah. So in terms of seeing the effects of CBD in animals, you said that you thought it was one of the most important uh, ingredients to come along. What what are you seeing out there in the world of veterinary medicine? Well, we're seeing pretty much the same thing we're seeing in the human side. We're seeing a very effective device against epilepsy and seizures in dogs and cats and other animals. We're seeing uh, pain mitigation is is very good. We're seeing anti-inflammatory uses uh, anti-nausea uses, everything that pretty much we're seeing on the human side, we're seeing on the animal side. One of the biggest complaints that I hear in terms of side effects with CBD products for animals is lethargy and drooling and um, um, impairment. And 
that shouldn't happen. That does not happen unless there's THC in the product. And that's what I'm talking about. There's there's problems out there that some of the products that tout to be THC free, I'm sure that if you sent to the right analytic lab, you'd find that it isn't. And that's a problem because dogs are way more sensitive to THC than we are. Um, there's been some, you know, lots of clinical data collected that it, you know, it can literally cause coma in dogs if it's if it's used in too much abundance. Um, cats, there's not as much evidence. There's not as much out there, but I suspect the same thing. And again, it's quality control. I, you know, I look at these dogs and cats also. It kind of put my mind in this direction. They're they're like canaries in our coal mine. We see them succumbing to ailments and the toxicities and diseases on an accelerated basis, the same things that we're dying from, the same things that we're affected by, but we see them come and go, come and go out of our life. And, you know, in my mind, it's the question, when will we get it? You know, the, the same things that are affecting our animals are affecting us and we're not paying attention, but, uh, you know, we don't feel the same, um, effect of, a little bit of THC in a CBD product like a dog does, you know, because they're hypersensitive. So again, it's the canary in a coal mine saying that, you know, the quality of this product needs to be questioned. Something's wrong here. Well, the other, the other potential explanation besides the product containing higher doses of THC um, than it should, let's say, is just the dosing of CBD itself. Because CBD, like anything, has adverse effects that are dose dependent. And the most commonly reported adverse effect of CBD in humans is mm-hmm. sedation. And so, you know, this goes back to this idea of dosing. What's the right dose of CBD in a hemp extract, let's say, to reduce the frequency and severity of seizures in a dog or to reduce limping and pain and inflammation in a dog, in their joints, let's say, from osteoarthritis. I, I don't know the animal literature, but I know in, in human literature, we don't have the answers to those questions. And if those clinical trials have been conducted, they've been conducted using isolated CBD as opposed to a hemp extract for the most part. And so when when we're dosing our animals and we see that our our dog is drooling and it's sedated as a result of giving it this uh, CBD dominant hemp extract. Maybe it's because there was too much THC in there, but maybe it was because we gave the dog too high of a dose because we're really speculating on what the safe and effective dose might be. Right. And you know, you're, you're hitting upon another subject that I know you're familiar with as a naturopathic doctor. And one of the mistakes that we've made in allopathic conventional medicine, if you will, as opposed to looking at things holistically, is we we tend to generalize what a dose should be over a, a large population of people or dogs, if you will. Um, how many milligrams does a dog need of X drug? When the reality is, is that each individual is different. And every individual has different needs, and whether it be human, whether it be a dog. And an appropriate dose for one individual might not be enough or might be too much for another. And it it comes back to the, the the frightening statistics that we see with properly prescribed prescription drugs. Hundreds of thousands of people every year die from properly prescribed drugs because that drug, even though it seems appropriate for the populace, is not appropriate for that individual. So 
it, 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 to me, it's a strong argument in favor of holistic and natural medicine because we're forced to look at the needs of the individual and not just the species, not just the age, but the actual individual and the nuances of the individual. And so it's, a, you know, finding a, an accurate dose and a standardized dose, it's, it's very difficult, if not impossible, when you take it into that level of consideration. So how do you determine how much CBD, let's say, or how much hemp extract to put in your formulas? There has to be enough, of course, for it to be cost effective, but also in a form where you could, you know, I, I put mine into a glycerin base because it's sweet, it's easy to administer. That's one of the one of the uh, challenges of giving herbal remedies to animals is just getting it into them because they don't like the the, the sensation of alcohol on their tongues and etc. But um, there has to be enough to make it a therapeutically viable product, but not so much that they can't be dosed down to the needs of an individual animal. Um, the, 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 uh, mm -hmm. the CBD that I'm marketing right now, it, it, it's at about eight milligrams per milliliter. And, uh, it can be dosed, you know, down to on a quarter of a quarter of a pipette, graduated pipette and such. And I, that seems to work well for, for me and, and my vet clients. So if you were to give some sort of dosing guidance for pet owners, if they were to start using CBD, and, and dosing, by the way, is specific, as you mentioned, not only to the individual, but to the condition, right? Right. You might not give the same dose to an 80-year-old female that you might give to an eight-year-old male. You might not give the same dose to a 300-pound individual as you would a 30-pound individual. But, but everyone wants to talk about dosing and they, they need some place to start for their pet, let's say. And it's, like I said, it's also condition specific. The dose for treating osteoarthritis may not be the same dose for treating a seizure disorder. So right. what kind of guidance could you give pet owners in terms of experimenting with uh, CBD for whatever ailment they want to explore? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I urge you to seek out companies that are marketing specifically for the needs of animals. And the reason is, is because they've presumably at least done some research and they, they've, they've done a little bit of study about the needs and nuances and sensitivities of the animals that they're marketing for. But there's also somebody to call if you do have questions. And in, in, now going back into the question of dosing, this is, this is a formula that I use for all herbs, not just CBD, is I believe instead of creating the static dose, you know, a 10 pound dog should get X amount, et cetera, is what I believe is you start with a conservative starting dose. You start at the lowest dose that the manufacturer recommends. And the case of, of, of my CBD product, a 10 pound dog or a small dog under 10 pounds would get half of a milliliter once a day. That's, that's, that's four, four milligrams of CBD a day. Um, depending on what you, what effect and what you're trying to treat, you're going to be monitoring for that and you're going to increase in 20, 25% increments until you start seeing the effect that you desire. And that's basically what I recommend to my veterinarians that are using herbal extracts in animals too. Start low, start with the, the, just a minimum dose because really some, some dogs will respond to one drop of tincture while others take three or four milliliters for the same effect. Right. And, uh, so start small and work your way up until you see the desired effect. And you don't have to worry about overfeeding and overdosing and, and things like that. 
So this model, uh, this motto of of start low and go slow, is the prevailing dosing approach in the world of medical cannabis for humans as well, and that is more specifically associated with THC as opposed to CBD. But um, but with CBD uh, for both humans and animals, a lot of people use that same approach. You start with a low dose. You see how the the, the person or the the animal tolerates it. And then you increase it up from there in order to achieve the effective dose. You know, it's interesting. We don't say that about ibuprofen. Right. We don't say that about penicillin. We don't say start with 10 milligrams of ibuprofen and see how you tolerate it. And then once we can demonstrate that you're tolerating it fine, we'll increase it up in order to achieve our clinical target. Right. And why is that? Because we have data, we have randomized controlled trials that show that the group that got 400 milligrams had no more pain relief than the group that got 200 milligrams. And the group that got 200 milligrams had more pain relief than the group that got 100 milligrams. Therefore, the appropriate dose is 200 milligrams. Yeah. So hopefully someday in the world of humans and in animals, we'll have better dosing guidelines for that are condition specific. Absolutely. I mean, I, what it requires is kind of a, a paradigm shift. We have to change the way we think, you know, and you, you talk about these, these randomized trial groups and you might have in, in a large study, what, 100 or 200 subjects, the drug gets approved, it goes out into commerce and now 100 million people are taking it and we start seeing side effects we never realized. That's, that's the danger of that, that protocol, you know, as and, you know, the drug manufacturers themselves will openly admit that, well, we really we really can't prove efficacy of our drug until it gets into commerce. We can't really show safety until it's already out there, you know, and right. you're not going to find it in a controlled double blind study of 200 people or individuals. And those and those are phase four clinical trials, which are conducted after the drug has been uh, approved by the FDA and they're required, you know, it's mm -hmm. post-market surveillance. And you're right, exactly. When it gets into uh, the general population, all of a sudden we can find all sorts of things that did not emerge during yeah. the, the pre-approval process. I think, you know, one of the, one of the, one of the greatest things we have going is to, this tendency toward meta studies. Now, I think they're extremely valuable. Yeah, because you know, instead of taking one study, we're grouping several of them together. We're kind of crossing the lines and and seeing where the where the dots meet, so to speak. And and it, it's very valuable, and it's, it's I think a much safer approach. Yeah. So you talk to a lot of vets. Is it you? You talked about the endocannabinoid system and how it's a relatively new scientific discovery. A lot of people don't know that the endocannabinoids, these compounds that we as humans produce in our body, and that that most animals and most mammals do. I think every organism that had a notochord, which is the precursor for our spinal cord, if they had that uh, during embryogenesis, they have an endocannabinoid system. And the endocannabinoids that we talk the most about, anandamide and 2-AG, they were first identified and isolated in animals. I think anandamide was first isolated from the gut of a pig and then it wasn't identified in the brain until they found it in a rat. And so animals are also very important from that perspective. But is it is it your experience in talking to these vets that they are getting educated on the endocannabinoid system during their veterinary training? Or is that still not something that's happening? 
I think it might be something that's just beginning right now at places like Colorado State University, for instance. They have um, an entire wing that is dedicated to natural and holistic medicine. And if it's happening, it's happening in places like that. But generally speaking, no, I think uh, the veterinarians are catching up the same ways that the rest of us are um, from, you know, other sources, Not certainly not in vet school. I mean, they're just starting, sadly, nutrition is just starting to catch on in vet school. The average veterinarian leaves, <laughs> the average veterinarian leaves vet school with like a week of nutrition training. Yeah. I mean, the same, the same dynamic is true in, in human medicine. Right. Exactly. Yeah. They're definitely, they're definitely wanting to catch up. I mean, almost every holistic veterinarian I know is aware of and has done pretty extensive research and study on the endocannabinoid system and certainly on CBD. Yeah. Despite their restrictions, they, they're, they're, they're woefully restricted on how they can behave with it. You know, and the, the Drug Enforcement Administration has not given permission to veterinarians to prescribe CBD products. And in some states, I think California included, they're not even allowed to talk about it with their clients. I'm not sure about that. I know in human medicine, there was a Supreme Court ruling, or maybe it was a Ninth Circuit ruling, that um, said that healthcare providers have, under freedom of speech, are allowed to at least have the conversation. Right. But yeah, there are a lot of restrictions. Do you know if veterinarians are using THC at all? They are. I mean, they are. They're they're recommending it in certain cases. I know a few vets that uh, go that direction. One of them is Robert Silver. I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's done a lot of work with uh, with cannabis and animals, and he's one that will comfortably integrate THC into his protocol as needed. But again, that's that's really getting dicey for them. You know, when the Drug Enforcement Administration won't even give allowance to prescription of CBD, yeah, THC is a whole different animal, so to speak, for them. So other than the the drooling and the sedation and the fatigue that you see in animals when they take CBD products, and that may be due to the, the THC that's in there, do you observe any other adverse effects um, from CBD-dominant products in animals? No, I don't. The only other adverse effect that I've I've observed and, and heard of is it's it's common with pretty much any supplement, and that's nausea, diarrhea, or vomiting, and that's generally a sensitivity issue or an allergy related issue. And uh, but no, that's one of the, the greatest things that I'm seeing with CBD, and I'm seeing positive results with very few side effects in animals. And you know, the beautiful thing about my transition from working with humans and and focusing on human uses is that it's really hard to argue a placebo effect right. when you give something by mouth to a dog and you see a, you know, a physical, a physical result, you know, and, uh, and I'm seeing it. It's, 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 a, it's really good. It's beautiful. And, and what conditions you mentioned seizures, and I think you mentioned pain and discomfort, but what, what are the observable outcomes that you see most often in, in animals? Well, a reduction of seizures, a reduction in both severity and frequency of seizures, especially when it's combined with other herbs that we know help with that. Things like skullcap and valerian, for instance, have been. I, I've I've witnessed very good success in helping reduce seizures in in dogs. Um, 
pain mitigation, you'll see the results in the, you know, the way the animals carry themselves, the way they walk, um, panting. You, you can tell when a dog is in pain. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious. And it, the nice thing is, is it happens quickly. Right. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to wait for days and months. You know, it's CBD, cannabis, it's, it's, uh, it's one of those supplements like fish oil. You give a good omega-3 fish oil to a dog that's never had it. And you see within a week, you start seeing improvements in coat and skin conditions. And it makes the, it makes the non-believer into a believer very quickly. And CBD is one of those supplements that I believe has that capacity. How difficult is it for you to source CBD for your products? You know, I'm sitting in my office in Ashland, Oregon, and, you know, on a warm summer day, you can smell <laughs> fresh hemp on the wind. There's just acre, acres and acres of it here, and there's certified organic hemp here. And finding a source isn't the problem. Finding um, a clean source that is what is purported to be is another challenge and something that, that meets up to the standards that I'm looking for. You know, I'm looking for cultivars that are bred specifically for CBD and not THC, and and there has to be attention to that on the on the grower side. And you know, some of these guys, some of these women, men and women that are growing it, again, they're just they know the value of the of the crop, and they're 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 planting it without consideration of who exactly they're going to market it to. So the plants and the chemistry of the plants kind of all over the map at this point in many of these these fields that I walk by and ride my bike through every day. So the challenge isn't getting it. The challenge is getting the quality and exactly what I want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. We, we talked a little bit before about the difference between hemp and marijuana, which are both types of cannabis sativa. And at least historically, one of the ways that you could discriminate hemp from marijuana was the way that the plants looked, mm -hmm. the phenotype. And the phenotype is an expression of the genotype. And so hemp plants were typically taller and they had really long stalks and branches because they were bred for a particular use, an industrial use to create textiles and whatnot. And marijuana plants were shorter generally with big fat flowers because they were bred to use these compounds that are synthesized inside the resin glands. But now if you ride your bike through a field of, uh, of hemp in Oregon, it looks exactly like a field of marijuana plants, right? Some do, some don't. I mean, it really depends on the style they want to. You're right, though. A lot of them look the same because the people that are growing the hemp used to grow just marijuana and they're still growing their hemp on, on 36 inch centers and stuff like that. Um, some on the other hand are growing hemp fields on a, on like a six inch center and it looks like a giant, giant bed of grass, literally a, a nine foot high bed of grass. And, uh, which is typically how hemp is grown in Europe and other places for textile and other uses. It's grown very close together. Right. It creates a whole different plant. You know, the, like, like you alluded to the idea of, for, for instance, fiber hemp is to have those long stalks. You want it to grow tall with as little foliage as possible. And you're marketing the stalk of the plant, not the leaves and the, and the flowers. So, you know, it depends on intended purpose and experience really. Exactly. You know, and then some of these cultivars that I've identified, you know, I, I mentioned the 44 or so pedigreed strains that are being used commercially in, in Europe. Some of them are just, uh, are, are, are bred to produce nothing but 
but seed from very short, squatty plants that produce lots of seed. You know, three feet high little bush and tons and tons of seeds, you know. So what an amazing plant. Yeah, so if you wanted to, could you purchase those seeds from those pedigreed cultivars in Europe and then plant them in the soil in Oregon? You know, that's a good question. Um, years ago, when the whole CBD rush began in Colorado, I, I did acquire some seeds from France. I have no idea what they're going to do when they get planted or what they'll produce. But, you know, I could see where if if that is allowed, and I don't see any reason why it wouldn't be, because I don't know if you're aware of this, but in Europe, and the EU, hemp is considered a food plant. It's not even a novel food commodity. It's a human food plant. It's regulated as a food. So when I get that that hemp juice powder that I reconstitute into the concentrate hemp leaf extract that we sell, I get it from Europe, and it is it is sent here as a, as a European food ingredient. And um, it passes FDA inspection on the East Coast and comes straight to me. There's no, no, no border issues, or never has been, because it didn't come out of Colorado. Didn't have to cross any borders, cross, and violate any kind of experimental program requirements, etc. But um, hemp seed, I'm sure. I mean, right now, all the hemp seed that comes into the United States from Canada, for instance, for use as bird feed and and such, is sterilized, so it can't be grown. It's just it's completely inert it's been treated but uh now with the farm bill open and hemp being taken off of schedule one i i could see where there could be a very lucrative business attached to bringing in pedigreed seeds yeah yeah is there a reason why you use the flower and not the leaf or excuse me use the leaf and not the flower we actually you know we use both, but really the, it's the manner by which the plants are, are harvested. The, the idea is to create a juice that isn't bitter. You're going to want the younger, the younger leaves. You're not going to want it to go into flowering stage and certainly not all the way into seeds. So basically what they're doing is they have a, a patented machine that actually harvests and strips the plants in the field and juices it right there. It just it strips all the leaves off, juices the plant, reserves a stock for other uses for cordage and such. And then it's rushed back to a, a drying facility where it's spray dried. And, you know, it stands a reason you'd want younger plants at, for, for that purpose. So this is pre-flowering. These, these plants are being yeah. harvested before the flowers. Right. That's fascinating. Well, so as far as upcoming plans for animal essentials, um, what's on the horizon for you guys? Well, we're I'm always working on new formulas. I'm, I'm working on other CBD formulas for seizure, combining them with various other botanicals. Um, I want something that, um, you know, one of the big issues and, and demands out there is for cognitive issues, life extension things. Mm-hmm. Um, older dogs and cats. And uh, so I'm, I'm working on products for that. And I'm certainly looking at incorporating CBD into into those products as well. How big of a problem are seizure disorders in uh, domesticated animals? Pretty high. Um, again, canary in the coal mine, they're, they're subject to a lot of the, the exogenous chemicals that we are, the pesticides, the herbicides, um, stuff that's in commercial foods that nobody knows about, including the food manufacturer. It's really a frightening scenario. 
So we see a lot of liver disease. We see a lot of um, brain dysfunction and seizures, especially in dogs. Mm-hmm. Certain breeds of dogs seem to be more predisposed than others. Epilepsy, genetic predispositions are there too, similar to people. Yep. Well, cool. Is there any other topics you wanted to hit on before we wrap it up? Um, one question I have, and I can't remember the name of this compound, but there is there is one herbicide or, or pesticide that is used on marijuana plants and on hemp plants that is approved for certified organic use. It's derived, I believe, from soybeans. Are you familiar with that? No. I, I just read a report, and I'll, I'll get back with you on this because I know you're going to want to hear about it. But it's uh, even though it's approved for use in certified organic produce and on, 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 you know, marijuana, it's very toxic and, uh, it's been banned in other countries yet. It's allowed for certified organic use as a pesticide in our country. And it's being widely used on, on hemp and marijuana. There needs to be some, a little more expose and study. Well, let me just think out loud and help me with this in terms of organic certification for hemp in the U.S., um, you know, prior to the signing of the Farm Bill, the 2018 Farm Bill in December, hemp was only allowed to be cultivated under a state pilot program pursuant to the 2014 Farm Bill. And I know there is certified organic hemp in the U.S., and there was before, I know at least in Colorado, and you said also in Oregon, um, before the 2018 Farm Bill was signed, was that USDA organic or was there some other independent entity that was certifying the hemp as organic? Um, here in Oregon, I believe it was Oregon TILF, yeah. which USDA organic recognizes as a viable certifying body. Yeah, so, so that's, what, um, that's where I was going with this. So th- is in terms of these pesticides, they're for marijuana, they're regulated by the state, not the federal government, because according to the federal government, marijuana is a Schedule One controlled substance. So each state has its own regulations in terms of what's allowed and what they test for. Right. And then in, as far as organic certification is concerned, I wonder if that's a, a national or a state-based certification as well. I'm yeah. I'm pretty sure it's a national. I mean, there there are companies, there are growers here that are using the USDA seal. Yeah, I've seen it too. So and you know, it's a, it's an Oregon TILF certification using the USDA seal, and the the chemical that I it's stuck on the tip of my tongue that I'm talking about is not specifically, it's not just specific to use on on cannabis plants. It's used in other agriculture as well, or, organic agriculture, and it's it's being found to be not not as healthy as, as we once thought. Azadiractin? Is that it? Yes. Azadiractin. Azadiractin. Take a look at the side effects and dangers of azadiractin. It will make you wonder why it's ever been certified or allowed in certified organic agriculture. Okay, and it's derived from neem oil. All right, I'll have a look at that. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Well, listen, I really appreciate your time and uh, all your experience and expertise. And um, I'd love to stay in touch and I'm going to keep my eye on you and Animal Essentials. Okay, great. Thank you. And it's been a pleasure being on your show. Best of luck to you. Thanks again for listening to the Cannabis Consult. To listen to more episodes, 
please visit CannabisConsultPodcast.com. To learn more about me, Dr. Jamie Caroon, visit CenterForMedicalCannabis.com. Thanks for your time. Jersey, big up, big up, big up, big up.